On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group talks to Yes Music podcast host and published author Kevin Mulrine. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. On this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friend Ken Gregory as we welcome um, founder and host of the Yes Music podcast, published author and friend of the Palaver, Kevin Mulrine. Hey, Kevin, so glad to have you here. Um, It's been a while since we've talked to you. We've actually spent a lot of time here on The Palaver talking to your co-host, Mark Anthony Kay, about uh, his various musical projects. Uh, But I don't think we've actually talked to you since we did our original crossover several years ago at this point. Yeah. And um, so I was, you know, it, it was kind of like beaten by the obvious when you were able to publish yes the tormato story which seems so perfectly kevin i'm like this is this is our opportunity you know so uh, very very glad that you were able to uh, to join us here today i appreciate your time it's great to be here uh kevin i know that you and mark anthony k do the uh, weather report here we're doing a pollen report <laughs> <laughs> It's absolutely terrible in the States. Do you have an update for uh, yes. the UK? It's, it's, well, we've got hul- high ultraviolet uh, radiation at the moment and high pollen as well. So, yes, it uh, seems to be across the world at the moment. Awesome. Welcome to the club. So we are, we are all dealing with sinus issues. Wonderful way to uh, start a Sunday. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Kevin, there's, there's a lot to get into in this book. And, you know, I think your love of Tormato is you know well known well established and perhaps other people in the yes community less so and you know i'm i'm probably guilty of that but i do want to say before we get too deep into it that the the efforts of of you kevin and i think you can by proxy here in the palaver have have really started to reform my view uh, overall of this record and so i was genuinely interested to receive and read this book and and it's it's quite a page turner so um <laughs> just wanted to to put that out on the table and say that you know i'm i'm coming into this conversation with a completely open heart and mind and i i'm, I'm just absolutely loving this that being said, I do want to maybe take a quick little side trip here because, you know, looking at this wonderful uh, package that you put together, just on the back here, it it mentions um, in your little blurb here, you know, Kevin is the founder and joint host of the weekly Yes Music podcast, which is now in its second decade. Congratulations. Yeah. But it says he is also co-founder of Teacher Hug Radio an audio expert, a member of the Podcast Academy, an audiobook producer and narrator, a webinar host, and an e-learning consultant. That is, <laughs> that's quite a little resume there. And so I, I wanted to to just maybe ask very quickly, um, if if you're interested and have time, uh, about the, the Teacher Hug Radio, because that sounds like a wonderful um, sort of pursuit. And, and 
as someone who is fascinated by um, audiobooks, I, I'm I'm I did not I was not aware of this aspect of your of your uh, of your resume. So is, is that something you can maybe fill us in a little bit about before we get started on Tormato? Yes. Uh, so Teacher Hug Radio is something that came out of lockdown, as so many projects did, and out of the pandemic. A friend of mine who I was at college with when I did teacher training many decades ago, uh, and I decided to start a, a radio show for, well, it's an online radio show for teachers uh, across the globe, but initially starting with, with the UK. And so we banded together with lots of, of very willing teachers who came up with ideas for shows to go out on the on the sh on the radio and uh, yeah so we, we we get together and we do a, a slightly fewer times than we used to but we do a, a breakfast show between uh, three of us my my friend from college and me and and uh, so that's that's a huge amount of fun and uh, yeah we've, we've put out well actually we're, we broadcast 24 hours a day with a variety of different different um programs for teachers and so that's yeah that's a lot of fun that's uh, fantastic enjoyed that mm. and the audiobook stuff uh once i'd started podcasting i actually started in 2010 and then started the yes music podcast in 2011 i i got very much into the whole technicalities of of recording sound and really enjoyed it and uh, actually through the same guys i started teach hug radio with it he he had written a book and wanted to produce an audio version of it, so I offered to do that. I went to his house, and and my my style of of recording audiobooks is that I travel to authors' houses and record with them in their own house with a with a an audio setup, a, a, a mobile audio setup, mm -hmm. and I've, I've produced quite a few um, authors' books like that. And clearly, when I came to creating my own book. I'm in the middle of producing an audiobook version of that, and I've I've created a little studio up in my my late father's old uh, um, office. So there is a place I go to and record chapters of the the Tomato story, and uh, yeah, it's 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 a great fun. It's great fun. I, I enjoy it, and it's one of those things that if you're used to recording anything audio wise, um, recording audiobooks isn't as daunting as it might at first seem. It's pretty straightforward as long as you can uh, produce it to the right standards and um, and output the audio in the format that, that is required for Audible, etc. That's awesome. That is very, very cool. And I'm I'm super excited to to learn that we've got an audio version of the, uh, the Tomato story coming out. That, <laughs> that's like a total bonus. <laughs> yes. And an ebook oh. version as well. Oh my. <laughs> Oh, do you, do you have an opportunity to stick in any bootleg audio in that audio book? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, I mean, I, we we do put a little bit of, of essentially fan-based audio um, in the podcast, but I think audiobooks would be a whole different different uh, experience of copyright, etc. <laughs> so Indeed. I think I'll be yeah. in there now. Maybe not a battle worth fighting, but yeah, amusing. <laughs> that's, that, well, that, that's fantastic. I, like Joe, I'm glad to hear it. Mm. Uh, wonderful. Now, now we both have the book. Uh, I made it through fifty pages uh, in a couple of days. Just breezed right through that, and I'm very much enjoying it. Uh, Joe, you have a physical copy in hand as well, right? I have a physical copy in hand, and it is quite the page turner. So, uh, you know, I've I've really enjoyed it. You know, from from our perspective, 
you know, there's so much here that that you go into, Kevin, especially in the first part of the book, just getting into sort of the the technical details of the recording and everything else, like just geeked me out incredibly. I'm like, this is the perfect level of detail. This is, this is the kind of book that I want. Um, and, and it's not surprising given, you know, the, you know, the, the sort of experiences and research you've done sort of naturally through, the, I think the yes music podcast, um, you know, and, and the people you've talked to hmm. if in terms of that though, it, and we will go into this, but since we're on the, the technical detail and, and there's a lot of it in here, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. I love, absolutely love how you, you sort of try to, to tease out the story of, you know, which exact eventide was being used based on what some person said versus what a picture shows you. And, um, you know, it, all of that, it, it, the detective work is fantastic. Now, is that the way that you generally approach things, or is that just the rabbit hole of Tormato for Kevin Mulrine? <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of both, really. And as soon as I'd started the Yes Music podcast, and I did it originally without Mark Anthony Kay, he came and uh, joined me as co-presenter some years ago now, but I started on my own, and it quickly became obvious to me that anything I was going to do on the Yes Music podcast had to be right. And it had to be well-researched and it had to, <laughs> <laughs> uh, had to, to steer clear of angering um, Yes uh, fans across the world because, as we know, they're the most dis dysfunctional bunch of fans, of <laughs> any, probably of any band in the world. Uh, <laughs> certainly there isn't a band which, which can boast more dysfunctional fans. But uh, So, yes, I knew things had to be right. And so I frequently made errors factual errors, date errors, those sorts of things in my early episodes of the podcast. And I was always um, called out for that by people leaving comments, etc., which I didn't mind at all. I was learning. I mean, that, that was the point of the podcast sure. was that I wanted to learn as much as I could about Yes. And particularly about Tormato, because that's the album that started my, my Yes story off. Um, and as I say in the book, I was, I was lent a a cassette which has 90125 on the one side and Tormato on the other side. So Tormato was not only the first progressive yes music I'd heard, it was the first progressive rock music of any type that I'd ever heard. So as you can imagine, it blew my mind. And I wore that tape out by listening to it many, many hundreds of times. Mm -hmm. And so it just sank into my psyche and into my brain and uh, I can't get rid of it. So every time I had the opportunity on the podcast to talk to someone about specifically about Tormato, then I took that opportunity, whether it's members of the band or um, anybody else I could find who would talk to me <laughs> about sure. Tormato. So that's what really started me off, and particularly Peter Wollescroft. And I, I managed to track him down through someone else in his family. I forget if it was his daughter or his niece or someone. We also had the surname Willescroft. It's not a very common name, as you can imagine. Even in the mm. UK, it's not a common name. So, uh, although he wasn't active on social media himself, I managed to find him, and he was so forthcoming with details about being the tape op on Tomato. And you know, he worked at Advision. He was there every single day of the three months that the band was were at Advision recording Tomato. And even more than that, he wrote a diary of that time in his career. And so wow. we had the most amazing conversation with him on the podcast. 
and he took us into precisely how the band set things up, how they set it up originally, and then we're told that it certainly wouldn't work if they were going to set it up like that, and they had to, to redo it, etc., and uh, all the shenanigans that went on because there wasn't, as you know, there wasn't a producer, the band self-produced uh, Tormato, and so all the problems that that led to. So once I'd done that, uh, I just started to dig in and find more and more people that would that would tell us the different parts of the story, and it, it soon became apparent that I had enough material to, to actually put together into, into a book. But I think the, 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 the point to make about the book is that it doesn't really matter if you like Tormato or not. The book isn't really about that. I mean, I, I do go on about why I like the particular songs and uh, you know, my, my reviews of the songs and why I think they're, they're great, but as you've already said, the, the amount of technical detail that I've gone into, I think, gives a fascinating insight into how Yes worked at that time, how all the different parts of Yes worked, including the, the live tours which came after Tormato and were so, so, um, so very successful, and other things like why, why the album sold so well and yet was so disliked by so many generations of Yes fans afterwards and also disliked by the band themselves. So yes, there's a long answer to a simple question. <laughs> it, it's fascinating, and I'm so glad you brought that up because honestly, in in the very first pages, after I got past <clears throat> Oliver's introduction, which we'll get back to, being of similar vintage, I reacted very, very deeply and personally to your story about you know your friend giving you the dub cassette because I mean that's how we grew up, that's what we did, and and. I don't know if I had missed that particular side of the story or not, but I was just the way you described it so perfectly of, you know, sort of turning the cassette over, if you will, to Tormato mm. and having that experience, having never heard anything, you know, else in the previous catalog, <laughs> it, yeah. it, it really, really deeply resonated with me. Um, Ken and I have similar stories. We had a, a friend in high school who used to dub us, old Genesis records um, mm. when, you know, when all that you heard was invisible touch and it's just like, Whoa, you know, this is, this is <laughs> totally different stuff. So, yeah. so that for me just really, really resonated. I just thought it was, it was such a, a powerful sort of um, origin story for your love of this record that I just, I thought it was spectacular. Mm. It was, it was amazing. My, my jaw hit the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, 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 you know, you talk about, you know, that being your entry point and, you know, that's one of the things that those of us who talk about progressive rock, you know, sort of, or any band really, it, your, your perception of a band's catalog is going to be determined for where you get in. I mean, my kids are the same, like we've talked about Star Wars movies. My kids are the same way. My kids see the, the different sets of Star Wars movies entirely differently than I do from where they, you know, first experienced them. Um, you know, friend of ours, Joe Cass in Total Mass Retain, absolutely mm. loves Open Your Eyes, which, and mm. as an album, which, again, I, I think maybe suffers from some of the same perception issues, if I can say that, as Tormato, mm. but that was his entry. That's where he got on the train, and so yeah. that, that album evokes a certain emotional response from him, which I totally respect. Um, so that's cool. Let's, let's talk quickly, um, about the, the intro by Oliver. 
Um, I thought that yeah. was a, a pretty deep and, um, dare I say, vulnerable mm. introduction by Oliver on, on his relationship to, to this record and kind of got, you know, some family history there. Yeah. Yeah. It was fantastic. I mean, we, we've had Oliver a couple of times on, two or three times on the podcast, and particularly when, yes, uh, released as a complete surprise to everybody in in Yes World when they released uh, From a Page, which he had essentially put together, finished off, and uh, and produced and everything else, really. And that was an amazing, amazing time in, in the life of, of the band. And Oliver speaks, interestingly, just like his father, speaks extremely fondly about his time in Yes. He absolutely loved being in Yes and, of course, didn't want to didn't want to leave and we're not we won't go into all those situations sure. that have occurred there why he left etc but but he he loved his time there he has always loved tomato and that just happened to come out we asked him the question on the podcast if you could go back to to yes and what would you play and he said well anything from tomato because it's my favorite yes record so clearly there was a <laughs> bit of a link there between uh, him and me immediately and so I just had a thought as I was deciding to do this this book I, I thought to myself well Oliver's a big fan so why don't I just ask him and bless him he's such a such a gent like his father is in many ways and he just immediately said yes I'd be delighted to I'd be honored to to write the introduction for the foreword to to the book so that was fantastic and yes I agree with you he does say some very personal things about the family, about the, you know, the split up in his family, and and all those, all those sorts of things, and going back to live close to his father. And oh yeah, it's it's there's it's it's only a short chapter, but I think it's a really a really um, heartfelt chapter, and and one that that shows his love of this record. And and, and I think that's you know a lot of what you know, we as, um, music listeners share again is, is this emotional quality, um, that these, this music will bring to us depending on, you know, what's going on in our life and how we associate those sorts of things. So again, I, that was, I was excited to get this book. I, I was surprised by Oliver's introduction, pleasantly so. Um, so there, there's a lot more, in this book than just, you know, the technical details that we've, we've already sort of alluded to. Mm -hmm. So well done across the board. Uh, Ken, you got anything before I kind of dive in here? I feel like I've just been kind of going crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Kid in the candy story. Obviously we uh, reviewed Termato as an album and made many, many references to it technically and humorously. Um, it, 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 it's become not just an entry point, but, um, critical lore. I think that's the word that we use when, when we talk about yes, fans correcting the media, uh, we needed to get our lore right at the Palaver. And it sounds like you, you went through that, uh, six or seven years prior to us. Um, that takes me to a mutual friend, um, Ken Fuller, I would, I would say in respect. I would say in response to what you said, someone who guided us on, along the way through our errors was uh, Ken Fuller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a great guy. That comes to mind. Yes, absolutely. You know, speaking of uh, fans and supporters and patrons, you have 
a fantastic list of executive uh, producers. So tell us maybe from your perspective as someone transitioning from podcast author, uh, what was your elevator pitch? I'm trying to think back to how it's, how it's all got going there. I mean, I, I think... I think I probably announced on the podcast, but it seems such a long time ago now that I'm struggling to remember the, the details of exactly how it happened. But certainly I, I announced to my my very faithful band of, of patrons, um, of of whom there are, I don't know how many, 59, something like that. And they a lot of them have been with been with the podcast and supported it for, you know, over 10 years, which is absolutely wonderful. And And so I let them know, first of all, that... I was planning to do this book. Now, as you're probably well aware, it actually costs a significant amount of money to put a book together. And that's not the, the price of printing the books. It's the price of, the, of all the research. And for example, I've got some great photographs, behind the scenes photographs in the book from people like Jim Halley, who were there at the time. He was, he was um, a tour manager. And mm. managed various aspects of yes at the time and i got some photographs from him i got some other photographs from chris welch's visit to advision he went along with barry Plummer, the legendary rock photographer and i got some photographs from him and these, right. are, these are not free uh, you know you have to pay the originators of these now some other people did uh, give their their archive photography for example uh, completely free of charge which was absolutely wonderful they the marvellous Dave Watkinson, who went to Rack Studios and saw some of the recording sessions uh, mm -hmm. when, yes, we're recording Tormato. He, he gave me his photographs and um, uh, lots of other people as well. So that's part of the, the cost. Um, and then the, the, the cost of, of uh, creating the, the actual physical copies themselves. And also having professional typesetting done. I think one of the one of the things that I learned along the way was that there's only a certain way you can go because I, I have self-published this and it's it's a print-on-demand book which used to have a very uh, negative uh, reputation because the, the technology just wasn't there but recently the te technology has become very much more advanced and the, the copies that you can get now are, are fantastic compared with what they used to be but I did have it professionally typeset and uh, and that costs as well. So there are all these costs. So what, what am I talking about costs for? Well, yes, what, what I said to my patrons was that the only way I could produce this book properly was if they would pre-order copies of the book. And that's what they did very kindly. Um, I had a great number of, uh, of those supporters saying that they would put their hands in their pockets and pre-order the book and also different sort of packages and one of those was the executive producer level package, which was a certain amount of money, which would support me to make the book. And so, yes, I got all that in. I think there are 17 uh, executive producers named in the, the start of the book and then lots of acknowledgements at the back of the book. Other people who helped me, um, not just by pre-ordering, but uh, by supporting me in lots of other different ways. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Nice, nice, nice work there. It, it it yeah it takes a village takes a universe yeah it certainly does <laughs> <laughs> and I had a, a follow up to Joe's technical comment um, uh, you know I suppose from my point of reference I was fortunate enough to intern in a twenty four track analog studio in the nineties uh, Paul here 
on the podcast had a similar intern experience in an actual working recording studio. And uh, I was just curious, um, uh, are some of, when, when you come across these old technologies, ha had you witnessed some of them? Uh, what, what is your, your frame of reference for, for what is now vintage mm. and foreign? I really, no, I really hadn't uh, come across any of this technology. Uh, I, I became a teacher straight after college. I've, I've never had any, any professional um, training or experience or anything amongst this, but I've always loved the whole, the whole area. And in fact, as I was saying to someone else recently, there are two different ways which I could have gone when I was of an age to go to university. I, I could either have gone into teacher training, which I did, um, and alternatively, I could have gone into the BBC, which was another of my Ooh. my loves. The whole concept of radio, which is why I'm a podcaster now, of course. It, I've always loved the the romance of, of radio. And I went to a careers fair, and I spoke to the BBC um, careers advisor person, and they said to me that, that I'd be better off going and getting a degree and then joining the BBC. But unfortunately, well, I don't know, <laughs> whatever, um, I, I never went back to it. I, I've always stayed in education, but, but yes, that the whole recording thing is, is such a, a mysterious and exciting world to me that, that when I did start finding out about these, these pieces of equipment, this, this uh, you know, 24 track stuff and all that, it, it, it just, again, blew my mind. Indeed. Well, thank you for being faithful to the reporting and the technology. It, it's, it's, it, it appears to be very accurate and, and you know, uh, honest from your sources. Mm. As they, as, especially, you know, the, the sometimes miraculous and sometimes disastrous litany of keyboards. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I mean, I always wanted to know about Tomato exactly how they got those sounds so whether it's uh chris squire's amazing harmonized and whatever else is in it bass sound uh, which he never he never did before and never went back to after tormato so it's a, a unique time capsule of what he was doing there and so i was desperate to know exactly what was going on there with that and things like discovering the the birotron which rick wakeman sunk a lot of his own personal money into as he's done so many times on various different projects but yes he's he he uh spent a lot of money trying to create this new tape-based um successor to the mellotron which he thought was going to be fantastic and lots of other people thought it was going to be fantastic but in fact never got out of the prototype stage but it does appear on probably going for the one and definitely on on tormato and so that you know from the keyboard's point of view and then i wanted to know what guitars Steve Howe was playing and uh, why they made a particular sound and why he chose particular particular ones because this Tomato again is a bit of a time capsule because there are a lot more um, Gibson uh, guitars here than on any other and on any other uh, and different types of Gibson guitars Les Paul guitars on Tomato much more than you find elsewhere in Yes and then on the drums with Alan playing the the North drums, even though Alan actually didn't remember that he'd recorded Tomato with, with North drums. Um, but why did he choose those? And, you know, who mm -hmm. could tell me about that? So I, I tracked down um, 
who did that, and particularly with the drums. I, you'll have to stop me because I'll go on forever, but <laughs> particularly about the drums, this drum synthesizer, which is mentioned on uh, in tour programs, it's mentioned on the sleeve notes of Tormato, but never can you find anywhere what this drum synthesizer actually was, who had created it, where it had come from, and where it went to. And so I managed to track down Derek Dearden, who was the guy who created the drum synthesizer, which is heard on... Uh, you know, arriving UFO and all those sorts of places with this strange late 70s, mm. early electronic drum stuff. So, yes, we, we had a fantastic conversation with Derek about about what he'd done there and proves to be another amazing character that we've managed to track down. Okay, speaking of uh, amazing characters, uh, did you reference uh, Fernando Perdomo? Yes. Oh, yes, uh, he did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, that was an interesting conversation we had with him because he came to tell us all about guitars, and as you know, he is he's one of the, the greatest experts on Yes guitarists um, in the world, and he's a, a huge supporter of Peter Banks, and so he should be, but he's also a huge supporter of, of Steve Howe. And uh, so we asked him all those questions which had been at the top of our minds about Steve Howe's guitars and why he used that one, why he didn't use that one. And uh, yeah, that was that was amazing. And again, we had to stop him. He would have gone on all night about about Steve's guitars. So that <laughs> it was a great episode. It, it really was a great episode. Um, well, and, and Steve's guitars in particular, like it seems to me there's always been an awful lot of information from from and about Steve on guitars, what's used on records. I remember when I got, I think it was the the Steve Howe album when I bought the yeah. uh, the LP, and you open up yeah. the gatefold and it's got like the little the little graph of what guitars he use. I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and and you made reference in your book to a uh, a book that was published in what was it 93 or 98 about the the Steve Howe guitar collection or something like that which I wasn't aware of, but I'm going to go looking for now. It's probably impossible to find, right? It's, it's pretty expensive now. And in fact, I was lent a copy by my good friend, Jeff Bailey, um, from Prog Report. In fact, right. Jeff Bailey. And yes, he, he lent me the, the, the copy or scans of the copy um, that he's got. And yes, it is very expensive. You can find it on eBay, but it's hundreds of dollars now. Uh, you might be lucky to find one. But yes, that's amazing. That's Steve's own book. So he's he... He had his a lot of his collection, which, as you know, is vast, of guitars um, photographed, and he talked about them and told stories about them in the text in that book. So it's it's a fascinating sort of visual encyclopedia of Steve's guitars. But what we were particularly interested for Fernando to explain to us was some of the photographs from, um, particularly AdVision, where he mm -hmm. seems to be using different guitars. Now I'm, I'm not going to give away any of the secrets in the, the book, but why he was seen with a, a completely different Les Paul, which didn't turn up on Tomato at all, is one of the fascinating stories. And why he used a, uh, a broadcaster um, guitar mm -hmm. for particular songs on Tomato. So why was that? What, what did the broadcaster give him that the Les Paul and other Les Pauls wouldn't have done? So, yeah, and why did he seem to use a broadcaster on that on Tormato, but yet he used the Telecaster for, for example, Relay. So this is the level of detail that we wanted to get, <laughs> to get into. <laughs> yeah, and we did. Yes. One, one, one detail I couldn't harvest out of Chris's setup um, 
Well, maybe I found it. The Cry Baby Wah, you're saying he used that on Termato and nowhere else in his career? Certainly that does seem to be there. Now, Miguel Falcao is the expert we turn to uh, for details of, of Chris Squire's setup. And the, the point at which we really were able to, to delve into that properly was when Dave Watkinson's photographs, which I'd only ever seen and he'd only ever seen in the original 1978 uh, photographs that he got developed, um, we persuaded him to, to digitize those for the first time. And we saw so much more detail in those photographs than wow. we'd ever seen before. And so he had taken a photograph, a unique photograph of Chris Squire's setup at Rack, which included all his pedals, all the electronics that he was using at the time, the, the, uh, the Taurus bass pedals, but the fact that the Taurus bass pedals were very heavily modified. And yes. in fact, split apart and a different unit put in between a, a unique bespoke piece of equipment that, that Chris had had made and a unique, unique controller as well for that, that bass pedal. But yes, on the side appears to be um, the, the Crybaby Wah, which is not um, credited elsewhere, I don't think, but Miguel is the, is the expert on those sorts of things. The one I was particularly interested in was the other side. It was the right-hand side of his setup, which was the, um, the oil can. Now, um, not being a, a bass guitarist, not being a guitarist myself, um, I had never heard of this sort of thing. So this was a, an early um effects pedal uh it was an early early echo uh, hmm. effects pedal which um which had rubber elements inside and recorded the signal as it came in from the bass and then um played it back but then created an echo effect by partially erasing the signal which was recorded into the unit <laughs> I mean, you know, it's so analog, it's unbelievable, really. Uh, and 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 so the signal got got um, uh, quieter and quieter. So uh, it's these sorts of amazing pieces of nineteen seventies technology, which I've I've loved digging into. And it's fascinating, right? Because it all of these stories, and my brain is kind of exploding right now. Just you know, when you sort of casually describe. You know, the first you, I'm going to credit you, you know, convincing, um, was it Dave to digitize Dave, these yeah. pictures? Yeah. And, and, and like getting more detail out of them than anyone had ever thought. Like, this is the, the type of investigative work that we were talking about in the beginning. But, but what it really speaks to is the fact that, um, you know, yes, we're, they seem to be, always sort of on the edge of whatever technology was there and using whatever was available to them, even if it wasn't maybe widely um, used. And I, I don't know, I just, I think that's part of some of the magic here. And, and, you know, sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the themes of the book is all the band trying new things um, for Tormata. Now, whether you think that's because they were worried about selling enough records in the future about their careers in, in terms of things like punk uh, and other styles of music becoming more prevalent than progressive rock in 1978, which is certainly true. And they were, they were essentially in lots of ways, particularly in, in equipment, I think, trying to, to forge new sounds, to create new sounds and to create new ways of doing things. And I think they, they always did that. I mean, that's one of the things about the Yes catalogue 
you, you couldn't really pick two yes albums that sound just the same no they, they don't they don't they're, they're they are um unique in their own ways and tomato is, is so different from drama and tomato is so different from going for the one in a lot of ways um so part of that i think is the, the technology and and part of that is the approach to some shorter songs etc but i did ask rick wakeman um, about that move to shorter songs because that's one of the the urban myths about Tomato is that they were desperately trying to catch up with the the current trend for shorter songs and therefore they they set out to create shorter songs and Rick categorically says no they didn't try and do that that's just what happened um, but he does admit that the the record companies probably were asking for shorter songs at the time and more hits like they'd had with um, with Wondrous Stories and uh, Don't Kill the Whale was very much, you know, uh, an attempt to to have a hit record from Tormato. But I don't think it was as clean cut as people like to have you believe. Um, and likewise, I don't think it's as clean cut that the band were in desperate straits and, and infighting, etc. I think it was pretty much the same amount of fighting as they'd always been doing <laughs> amongst themselves in, in Tormato. Mm-hmm. And I think only really when... The next year they got to Paris is when it really fell apart, and the the, the two camps, the um, the Anderson and Wakeman camp versus the the White Howe and uh, Squire camp was really set up there. I, I think you probably could see some some uh, some friction. Of course you could, but uh, I don't think it really reared its head properly until until Paris, um, and. You know that's why they managed to do an amazing set of concerts uh, from Tormato. That's that's why people talk about that those two tours, the Tormato tour and the Ten True Summers tour, with with such great affection because um, uh, in the round and all those things, it was uh, it was an amazing couple of tours that they did. So so yeah, yeah. It's it, it's interesting you mentioned that because I was um, I, I was thinking that as you're sort of describing the tension or lack thereof if if a band was on the verge of falling apart you know you it would be very difficult i think to put together a tour or tours like that that are so uh so well received i was very happy um reading the 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 section on the uh live in philadelphia video (laughs) <laughs> that I actually have a copy of that on DVD. Yeah. I had no idea it was sort of difficult to find, so I'm, I'm patting myself on the back a little bit um, <laughs> that I actually have one. And having, yeah. you know, Ken and I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. You know, that's our our initial experiences. Seeing Yes were in mm. Philadelphia. Mine, Ken still are. Mine kind of split time. Um, so, you know, it, it's nice to sort of have Philadelphia be attached to this part of the story. I think you ac- accurately describe maybe some of the limitations of that video. It's certainly mm. not what we are used to seeing in 21st century uh, concert films, but it, it does have certain um, certain charming characteristics to it. Now, it's interesting. Um, I loved the section um, where you were where you provided, you know, the, the statistics on which tracks from Tormato were played live in 78 and 79 and then post 
it, it harkened me back to the episode that that we did on the palaver about Genesis by the numbers, where I made a lot of different uh, pie charts on things. But mm-hmm. I was amazed that seeing that in '78 and '79, the band played Circus of Heaven more times than they played Arriving UFO, mm-hmm. and and I was even more surprised because I haven't actually watched it in a in a while to see that. Um, Circus of Heaven apparently is on the live in Philadelphia 1979 DVD. So now I need to go back and oh, yeah. sort of experience that in my new open mindset. Um, and and I loved yeah. I loved the way you uh, you described that. And I, I'm if if I may, I'm going to quote you when you're talking about the the Circus of Heaven portion of that of that DVD. Please, please don't let Prague Rada prog rock critics see this segment those of us who understand will understand but this performance is really bordering on the ridiculous <laughs> i absolutely like i was falling out of my chair when i read that and i'm like i need to go watch this now <laughs> yes well i think rick Wakeman particularly just i mean it, it his his fairground stuff on the record is 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 bad enough, but what he did to it live is just criminal, really. Uh, and I, I don't know what he'd think about it now if he went back to it. But yes, and I, I contacted Den, Denny Somach. Is that how you pronounce his name? I'm um, not 100 percent certain, the, honestly. The, the DJ. So he he produced that live in Philadelphia um, disc, and I've actually just got a. Uh, a laserdisc copy of, of that. Oh, I nice! Laser disc. I haven't got a laserdisc player, but um, well, that's not important. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it, 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 was, it was. I think it was very hastily put together, but they wanted to to make a film uh, as well as they could, and I think the lighting wasn't as good as it uh, as it needed to be in terms of capturing it. But at least we do have a uh, a, uh, a record of that legendary performance there, and. Of course, if you if you had that uh, that footage and then put it together with the the BBC um, recording from uh, Wembley in, in 1978, then that would probably be the best way to experience uh, experience it. I was, I mean, he's he's told me. Then he told me that he has a lot of the unused footage. He still has it in his in his possession, and wouldn't it be wonderful to to try and persuade him to to do some kind of director's cut? Um, yes, yeah. you know, he said they did use the best, the best parts of it. But it's a very short DVD, and it's certainly a t- only a tiny section of the whole concert that they performed on that night. So one of the other things about the book that I found enjoyable, and I'm curious on how maybe this came about, and that's the footnotes. <laughs> because the, the footnotes will take, like, it, it's a series of, of web links and it will be tormatobook.com slash whatever. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's usually pretty obvious in the text sort of what the footnote is about, but I, I, I guess I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to be sent to various websites when mm-hmm. I typed in, you know, the particular footnote and it mm-hmm. kind of became a, a joy for me. Like, where is this going to take me now? <laughs> Yes, that, that was. I, I just had that thought because I was putting these po- um, footnotes in, and the problem is that when you start putting footnotes into a book like this, uh, a lot of the web links are incredibly long and and cumbersome, 
And so I thought, well, how can I get round that, but still have the footnotes in there, because I think it's, it's, it really helps um, to explain what was going on for those people like you who want to go even further down the rabbit hole. It's great to have them. So, so I decided to, to create uh, them all as, as short links, as, as links, uh, yes, mm-hmm. which you, mm-hmm. you don't know until you type them in what exactly you're going to get. <laughs> That's a bit of, a bit of fun, really. It, it really was like I, I was every time I came upon a footnote and I'm about to type it in, I'm like, ooh, this is going to be great. <laughs> it, it took me about three or four before I figured out what was going on. And I really invested in the uh, in the process. But I'm a slow yeah. learner. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> if I could just jump in v- v- very quickly. Uh, so, Kevin, a- as a researcher, um, talk about the love hate relationship with Wikipedia. Ah, well, the, the Wikipedia is created by contributors, isn't it? So, uh, like everything on the internet, it can be it can be right, it can be completely wrong. And so, I'm hoping that I, I don't know who would do it. I, I suppose it would be down to me in the end. The Tomato uh, uh, pages on Wikipedia are some of, some of it is just wrong, uh, <laughs> and and a lot of it is is sort of misleading, and the. The bit which particularly upset me, uh, or you know, this is the one that comes to the top of my mind just now, is the insistence that um, that that Eddie Offord had anything to do with this record at all, right? Which he which he didn't, because uh, as you'll see in the book, not giving too much away, but Peter Wooderscroft, as I said, he was tape op. It was his job uh, to wrangle the tapes. So when Chris Squire said uh, for for this version I'd like you to put take seven together with tape 35 of uh, On the Silent Wings of Freedom and he had to go away and do that so he had to produce an amazing cataloging system of his own to cope with these uh, with these master tapes with these uh, multi-track tapes but Peter Wilskoff was therefore there every single day I've already said that um, of the recording at AdVision and he only saw Eddie Offord once mm-hmm. Uh, so Eddie Offord was certainly not involved with producing or engineering the album. And the time when he did see him, someone gave him a call from, from reception and said, uh, there's this guy at reception, he's called Eddie, and he's got a crow on his shoulder. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Peter Wallacecroft said, oh yeah, uh, send him up then. And so Eddie came into the, into the studio, looked around, and then left. And that was the only time Peter ever saw Eddie offered. So mm-hmm. he certainly had nothing to do with it. I also asked Rick Wakeman whether the other rumor is that Eddie offered may have recorded some of the, or tried to record some of the, some of the rehearsals for the album. And um, I asked Rick Wakeman and he said, no, it's news to me. I, I don't remember Eddie offered being anywhere near the album. He was never intended to be anything to do with the album. And he certainly wasn't. So uh, yeah, th- those sorts of things, which are, perhaps don't seem terribly important to, <laughs> mm. to people who are not uh, Yes fans in the same way as we are. That That's incredibly important for us because Eddie Offord would have done this in a very different way, would have created Tormato completely differently. It would have been a different record entirely had he been involved. So, um, yeah, it was important to, to notice that. So, so yes, please take Wikipedia with a pinch of salt and, and go and find out the real answers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's why I need to finish your book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty long, isn't it? 336 pages about one album. It, it is pretty long. If, if, 
if I may, um, just, and, and again, we don't want to give away the farm, but I, I can kind of just run through the sort of large sections of the book to get, you know, for anyone who doesn't have it yet. And if you don't yeah. have it, I'm recommending you go get it. Cause if you're listening to this podcast, Indeed. you're yes. our type of people. Yep. <laughs> <clears throat> so, so Kevin, you were, you cover the recording, the instruments and tech, the songs, the albums and singles, uh, promotion and reception, Tormato Live, and then there's an epilogue. So it, it's really a very broad spectrum approach to to this album um, that you you get into all the different parts. And and I think we've kind of touched on on most of these already. And again, love the footnotes. So good fun to be had for uh, for everyone. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, just a, a word on why it goes in. There's two things. There's one is my own obsession with trying to find out about things. I mean, we haven't even mentioned the harpsichords. Uh, so <laughs> I, I, I was desperate to know what harpsichord was used. I didn't quite find out where it was recorded, but um, that's lost in the mists of time, unfortunately. But I wanted to know what it was, who had made it, where it came from, why it was on the album, etc. But no, the, the two reasons are my own obsession with finding out that kind of thing and also uh, waking up in the middle of the, and this really happened, uh, waking up in the middle of the night thinking, if I don't put that in the book, then someone's going to mention it, aren't they? And, and one thing which, which has happened, I, I had such, such a good time finding out about the, the cover. Now you might think to yourself, well, that's just a stupid cover designed by hypnosis. It was a crazy idea and it was rubbish, but there's so, yeah. So much. There's so much in that. And something else that I woke up in the middle of the night thinking just recently, because the book's published now, I can't go back and redo it. But someone pointed out... Second that, edition, Kevin, second edition. Yeah, well, someone pointed out on, on, on Facebook, I think it was, that the tour that they uh, photographed for the back of the front and back cover, it's not Yes Tour. Ah. Okay, so... Ah. <laughs> they took a photograph of the wrong tour. <laughs> okay, so that's not yes tour. That's that's um, uh, it's called high 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 willies or something like that, which is which is close to yes tour, but I think actually uh, when they went to to photograph it, Rob Brimson photographed it. Um, I talked to him in the book. Um, yeah, he's got the wrong one. So that's fascinating. I'll, I'll have to I'll have to uh, clarify that in my own <laughs> mind because I, I I need to go and and uh, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely determine whether that's true or not. But yeah, I one point that you made, um, and I think it came up when you were talking about the the multi track tapes, and you were talking about you yeah. know remastering and and all that other stuff. But you you made mention of you know if someone were hypothetically to ever do a remaster of this album, that would provide an opportunity for Roger Dean to create a, a cover for Tormato, and how you feel that would be. I don't, you didn't use the word disservice, but inappropriate, I think is, is your general feeling. And I just wanted to echo the fact that I feel the same way. There's something about this particular record and, you know, the, the amount of time we spent with it, that it's characteristic and say what you want to about the hypnosis cover and hypnosis have, you know, they've had some really home runs and they've had some real misses. Um, it's, it's indelibly a part of this record, I think. Yeah. Well, it is. And if you didn't have Yes Tour in the background, then that part of the, the whole story of the album would be lost. Yeah. Because 
it wasn't it was to be called yes tour which is why they've got yes tour well whether it is yes tour or not as we just said but that's why they've got a photograph of yes tour in in the background and um when i spoke to steve howe about it he was really keen on the idea of the album being called yes tour because it has that kind of mystical yes thing right um, aspect to it because these are these are high high areas of land outcrops of rocks across um not only the uk but across the world which are joined together by these ley lines um supposed to be lines of power so these places are significant places um going back into history and prehistory and so he was very keen on it being called yes to quite apart from the fact that he lives quite close to it um and incidentally the the yes management offices are now very close to yes tour interestingly but anyway um so yes you would lose that and you would lose the the really odd water diviner character and you would you would miss the whole story about who threw the the tomato who changed the the name to tomato why was it changed to tomato how did they get away with it and the whole the whole aspect of the story about how much the band hate that cover that would <laughs> that would all be lost so and you know yes has a, a habit of of um hiding things in my dog in the background now yeah. um yes has a, a habit of of hiding things like the uh, fly from here so fly from here now is very difficult to get hold of the original copy of fly from here because of fly from here return trip um, and a fact of artwork, which i'm painfully aware <laughs> yeah and the artwork on there was redone by Roger Dean. So Roger Dean, it's a slightly different cover. I, I didn't realize when I first got hold of it, but that's going off on another tangent. But, but yes, so it, it is possible even in the world of Yes to, to lose things. So if you were to recreate that uh, Tomato album cover and the Going for the One album cover, uh, it, you know, the whole part of Yes history would be potentially lost, I think. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, and but I, I love that whole aspect of it. And you know, again, there. I think when you talk about a band like Yes, <coughs> these albums, they 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 tell a story that's more than just the music. And and this is all the kind of stuff that we're we're talking about here. I, I'm curious, just from a general perspective, as someone who is very very obviously steeped in in Yes lore and knowledge and um. Tomato in particular, and, and again, a lot of this, I, I think a, a lot of the research for this book sort of came out from what you guys normally do on the Yes Music podcast. But when you sat down and said, I'm going to write a Tormato book, what was, what was one thing that popped out that you didn't already know that just left your jaw sitting on the floor? Ooh, there were so so many things. Uh, so there was a lot that sort of came out yeah. after you decided to do a book, right? Yes, yes, perfect. So the one the one thing uh, there are so many stories in the book which which fall into that category. But one of the ones which still remains a bit of a puzzle is the the video the videos. So the 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 music videos for uh, Madrigal and um, Don't Kill the Whale. And also the relationship between those videos and a guy whose name is um, Clive Richardson. Now, Clive Richardson was 
uh, worked on the stages, worked on the, the live shows, and, for example, he worked in the, the legendary Yes warehouse in the middle of London with Martin and Roger Dean, creating some of those fiberglass amazing sets um, for, for Yes in the mid to late 70s. And uh, so, so Clive was someone I wanted to talk to. Unfortunately, I couldn't find him. Uh, the last time any of his former colleagues saw him was at Nigel Luby's funeral, unfortunately. Um, so I don't know if Clive is still with us. Uh, but what I, why I wanted to talk to him was for two reasons. Firstly, uh, the amazing Forgotten Yesterday's website found uh, an interview with Clive Richardson in a local English paper, so local to where he lived. And this goes into great detail about what Clive was doing for Yes at the time and what he was going to go on to do. In fact, Clive left um, Yes and he went on to an extremely um, lucrative and successful career producing 80s bands uh, videos for MTV and the like and Top of the Pops and all those sorts of things. And so he was extremely well known in the 80s for film, but that's not what he did for, for Yes. Or was it? Well, that's what I'm coming to in a minute. But what it did, what he did talk about in that interview, Clive, was he was creating a, a hundred foot um, projection screen, video projection screen, which was going to be used by Yes on their Tormato tour. Um, and that never came about. And so what I wanted to know was, what did you do, you know, towards that? Why did it not come about? Well, I think the reason it didn't come about is because it wouldn't have fitted in with the the rotating stage, the mm -hmm. rotating mm -hmm. circular stage. You couldn't have had a, a that. And also he was sent to to source a what was called a, a, a laser scanner for the concerts. Again, that was never used. Uh, yes, used lasers previously um, live, famously. So there's that aspect for it. I wanted to want to know what exactly it was that he was asked to create for the tours, why it hadn't happened, and also whether he was behind the, behind literally behind the camera, to create the the videos for on the uh, no sorry uh, for magical and and uh, don't kill the whale, because I th I'm pretty sure, but again nobody can tell me, nobody remembers, and I've asked lots of people, including Roger Dean himself, um, whether he took the behind-the-scenes video, the very famous behind-the-scenes video at AdVision um, of the band recording uh, on the Silent Wings of Freedom. Now, I think it was him, and I have an inkling that he also created those videos for the two songs, mm. but I can't confirm that. What he did do was he, he, he filmed the video for Alan White's um, Spring Song of Innocence um, video, he definitely created that, and it's in a vaguely similar style to the the, the magical and the, the Don't Kill the Whale video. So I'm wondering if Clive actually created those. But again, as I say, I've not been able to to find out. And I asked Rick Wakeman about magical because I mean he's the he's the uh, the main character in that video, and he has no idea why that video was made, and nobody has any idea why it was made because it was never intended to be a uh, a single magical wouldn't have worked as a single on its own and until it appeared on the the yes greatest video hits collection 
I don't think anyone had ever seen that video of Madrigal. Uh, I can't find anyone who ever, had ever seen it in the 70s. So I just can't imagine why it was it was created. And, you know, they went to a, a stately home near the Thames in, in London and dressed up in 17th century outfits <laughs> and created this amazing video. And nobody knows why. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I, I don't know. The easy listening charts, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, um, you have worked with Burning Shed in distribution. I'm just wondering, what have you learned about perhaps Brexit or Burning <laughs> Shed or distribution in the process of working with your first physical book? Well, I've learned that Burning Shed are fantastic. Uh, I've learned that the way that I've created the book through... Uh, through, uh, what, I can't remember the name of the, of the company at the moment. Uh, that's annoying. Ingram Spark. Yeah, so I used Ingram Spark, who are a, a print-on-demand company. They've actually been fantastic as well. The, the quality, as I said earlier, the quality of this book compared with really every other self-published book I've, I've seen up till now, this, this is much higher quality than I've, I've seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just the quality of the paper, the, the quality of the printing, etc. is just great. And it doesn't, to me, it doesn't feel or look like a, a an inverted commas, self-published book. Um, yeah, Burning Shed have been fantastic. They've, you see, they, they are on the side of the musician because they are musicians. So, so it's, a, it's a company created by musicians for musicians. And so if you think about the, the, the margins... Uh, of, of creating books so you don't make very much money from each each book that you sell but if you go with someone like Burning Shed who've done most of the pre-order of my book and are currently selling copies um, you know for real um, after the pre-order um, they take uh, commission which is much much smaller than online retailers like Amazon or etc mm-hmm. um, the the downside to that is and particularly at the moment with Brexit etc uh, postage costs, shipping costs around the world are significantly higher than they ever ever were before. Uh, you know, just just an outrageous amount of money to, to send things across the world now, uh, which is a great shame. So, what I've been saying to people is that if you're on this side of the Atlantic, then get your copy from Burning Shed because it benefits me, it benefits Burning Shed, it benefits artists, and uh, that's fantastic. If you're on the other side of the Atlantic, then you're better off with uh, a local printing and the, the the good thing about going with Ingram Spark is that they will print copies of my book in the US to send out to the US uh, oh. in Canada to send out to Canada so they don't have to come across the world um, so that's much better for um, you know local people for, for carbon etc um, but Burning Shed have been absolutely fantastic good to hear it very good yeah, I get a. <clears throat> I I frequent Burning Shed, and I pay those exorbitant shipping costs a lot, just because it's it's for me. Maybe I'm just limited in some ways. It it seems more difficult to find the interesting things that I want in the U.S. So I can just go to Burning mm-hmm. Shed and find whatever it is that I need. I ought to say about the, if you don't mind. Oh no, about the, the color supplement as well. So one of one of the restrictions that I I couldn't do is with printing on demand myself um, was I couldn't include any any color photographs which I really wanted to do so I produced um, this which is a color supplement to the book 
which is only available from me at the moment. Um, oh, nice. Tormatobook.com. And so a lot of the photographs which are in the, the main book um, are reproduced here, but I've also annotated them as well. So I was talking about those extra details that you can see in Dave Watkinson's photos. So I've, I've reproduced all his photos in, in full color. And um, Ooh, okay. for example, the rack, the rack wow. console there, there are, there are uh, words written onto gaffer tape on the console which I've been able to zoom into and, uh, and see what they are for the first time ever. Anyone's um, seen those. And I've got sections about the Norse drums and all sorts of things in there behind the, those behind the, the scenes photographs that Jim Halley took uh, oh. printed there and, and annotated as well. So if you want a copy of that, then tormatobook.com is the place to go for that. And in fact, I've run out of those, so I'm going to have to get them reprinted, which is which is really good news for me. That's awesome. Good for you. Congrats. This is uh, this is exciting stuff. As we as we finish this up, I, I feel obligated to ask the obvious question: What is the current size of your Tormato collection, Ken? <laughs> and has it increased in the last six months? Uh, it has increased in the last six months. Yes. Uh, well, it depends what you're what you're on about. If, if you if you mean just the the albums, then I, I think I've probably got about at last count. I think it was fifty seven different copies of Tomato uh, in all formats. That's that's across vinyl, um, CD, eight track cassettes, um, compact cassettes. Uh, I think that's about it. My dog's trying to trying to remind me of other ones that I've got. Yeah. Um, so yeah, seven of those, and then multiple copies of the singles from across the world. Uh, and and well. you've got uh, a laser disc of the live in Philadelphia now. I so. have, yes, my my one and only laser disc in my entire collection. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely exceptional. Cool. I've I've kind of run out of topics that that I specifically wanted to cover. I think we've um, we've mentioned tromatobook.com or Burning Shed for people who don't already have it. Again, I'm going to recommend that you very much um, go out and, and source this book. It is definitely a, it's a treat to read. Anything else, Ken or Kevin, that we need to cover on the, on the way out here? It's just been a, a, a great experience, um, like a kid in a candy store. So yeah, <laughs> that, Thank you for, for, for doing this this deep dive so others don't have to. Yes, yes, <laughs> indeed. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's definitely, definitely the case, yes. So, awesome. Uh, and Kevin, yeah. it's it's really been enjoyable to catch up with you. Very much um, appreciate all that, that you do on the, uh, the Yes Music podcast and um, look forward to, you know, continuing on with, with your journey there and um, I look forward to the next printing of the color supplement and we'll <laughs> see what the, uh, what the future holds for all of us. If, if there were no restrictions, uh, monetary or otherwise, what, what, what would album would you dive into next? I uh, see that's, that's really tricky, isn't it? I, I do have some, some emerging plans about doing a series of, of books, but something on a very, a very different level. Um, this is, this has been years of my of my life. <laughs> um, if if I had to, I suppose the the next one would be nine hundred one two five. So Ooh. that would be that would be very interesting. But I also have a hankering, you see, to to go into 
and find out all I can about albums which are not quite so well known. So, for example, Magnification um, would be fantastic to delve into because of the orchestral elements of that and and the different artwork and all those sorts of things. So, yeah, maybe that. Who can say? Spectacular. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Okay. Great. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciated this. Um, congratulations on the book. I hope it, uh, I hope it continues to do well. And uh, we'll talk to you in the future, my friend. Thank you very much. Yes, thanks again. Thanks again. All right. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Paliver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you and look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We are at ProgPala on all of those or search for Progressive Paliver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is ProgPala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.